0: You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're talking about stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. We're in studio today with Rob Lugo, an extremely talented ceramic artist who is here in New Haven, Connecticut for a summer internship program and is making a lot of splash in the art world with his ceramic art. And I'm really honored that you made time to talk to me today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So you're here for the summer. Yes. And you're doing this internship program over at ArtSpace. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing with the students
1: there? So the program, this student apprenticeship program, was started some years ago by uh, Solowit. And um, the idea was for... uh, know a handful of uh, New Haven students to be able to get together with a professional working artist and put together an exhibition learn a little bit about process that person's philosophy and maybe leave with something that they could use later on and so um, I'm from Philadelphia and um, I was contacted about this and this is the first time that Artspace New Haven um, which is a really incredible organization um, asked me to to come and participate and it's the first time they've done clay and there's a reason Mm. why um, people don't normally do clay because there's a huge learning curve and so um it's interesting that you introduced me as this incredibly talented person because I think um you know one one facet to um my my philosophy is that I uh I guess my 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 only talent is that I'm very untalented (laughs) and uh why that's important is because um you know i 've learned some time ago it's it 's very humbling to realize that there's so many people that innately have all these abilities that um, you know i don 't have, and so that that often just keeps me hungry and constantly in this mode of trying to make up time and um, that sort of effort that ability to you know overcome what you don 't have by working hard um, is probably my my greatest asset and one of the things that I really try to Um, communicate with the students. One of the main um, sort of themes within this this time that we've had together is this idea of paying homage thinking a little bit about folks that um, they know whether they're folks that um, have passed away, heroes that they've never met before. Um, They get to choose who it is that they get to pay homage to and uh, working with Clay we've created these tile murals for them to be able to commemorate um, this particular person. And why that's important is because, you know, where I grew up in Philadelphia, um, people, when, when someone would pass away, um, most of the time it was from, you know, gun violence in the neighborhood, and someone would, would draw up a rest in peace mural and sort of do a, a makeshift portrait of it, and the city would cover it up. Um, not because they, they didn't think this person deserved it, but just because, you know, they didn't get permission or anything like that, and someone didn't want that mural up there. So, what's interesting about clay is clay's been used historically uh, by anthropologists to tell us the history of culture's past right, and so we have clay things that are thousands of years old, and so the idea that these kids get to then commemorate the person that they want um, in clay means that this this work will last for thousands of years and so long after we know these people in terms of popularity or you know when they're they're no longer in sort of the 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 I don't even know if you know two thousand years from now we're going to have homes, but um, sort of these household names, these things will still exist, and so I I find that really profound. And so one of the main sort of tenets that I've been trying to um, communicate with the students is, um, you know, this this sort of sense of humility. And so one of the things that I've um, sort of described over and over and over again is that you don't have to be um, good at anything you don't have to be the best at anything sometimes it's just about um, the combination of all the things you're mediocre at and so for me uh, I'm not the greatest potter in the world I'm not the greatest uh, lyricist in the world I'm not the greatest um, you know writer certainly not the greatest writer in the world um, but the the combination of those things and the things that I'm interested in and in what I say with them I think is is what makes me distinctive and so I, I try to communicate that with them because I think a lot of times so many things seem out of reach mm-hmm. um, but I'm trying to communicate to them that, um, either through hard work or through your talents and the combination of those things, um, you have a voice that's really important.
0: Yeah, I think those things are really important. Like the in this society, the idea that of perfection and of having to be the best at something can be just really debilitating for people. And I often also look at that as part of kind of white supremacy and part of like capitalism that this idea of like having these major achievements are what defines success and so I think that's really important to both of the things you said around saying like you don't have to be the best at something but like using the assets you have and then also when I think of talent it's about how do you work with the things you have Mm -hmm. to communicate the things that are in your heart in your soul and and do it with creativity and outside the box and so for me the talent that I see in your art is that you took this medium that spoke to you which I want to hear more about why it speaks to you Mm -hmm. but then that you um you know you took these things that you're thinking about that are impacting you and and put them out there in a way that's different than or that is maybe references ways that people have done it in the past but but is your own way and that is what um to me what talent really really looks like
1: um I like that definition. We should change it in the dictionary. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That should be like option number two. You know how like- Yeah, everyone yeah. It?
0: Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So I have seen that you say that pottery saved your life mm-hmm. um, and also that your first art was graffiti Yeah. and that you then moved into clay. Can you talk a
1: little bit about what, what does that mean? Sure. So, uh, you know, my first introduction to art really was in, in Philadelphia. We have this great Mural program, and you know, I didn't know much about the history of it, um, but apparently, at some point, the city was really being covered in graffiti, and um, they noticed the the artistic prowess that these artists had, and so um, graffiti artists started to be, you know, included within the the, the conversation in Philadelphia arts, and he said, you know, why don't we work together to create these larger murals? And so, growing up, I would see all these beautiful um walls were painted but for me it was just like seeing a building or bodega these paintings and I began to do graffiti more as a way to um socialize and also um you know where I come from we didn't really have too many gangs but there was a lot of violence and there were sort of these like neighborhood rivalries and so um there's a lot of fear in me um just the violence that I've seen perpetrated against myself and my family and friends. And so I began to hang out with my older cousins who were graffiti artists. And for me, it was more of, a, the more I'm around these guys, the less likely I'm going to get beat up. <laughs> and um, being exposed to that was was really uh, incredible because it was the first time that I got a sense of the, the idea of community, and uh, not a forced community that, like, your parents kind of have to like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but these people can sort of choose. And so the idea that folks chose to hang around me and that they respected what it was I was doing. And so there was a lot of things like in graffiti, people give you your graffiti name and where you go other places, you're always also like writing the names of the people that taught you how to do graffiti. And so um, when I was doing I didn't really see it as an art. It was just a sort of pastime and a way to connect with those around me. And then, uh, you know, years later, I I was in high school. In the high school that I went to, just to give you folks an idea of, of what high school looks like in a place like philadelphia in the 90s you know they gave it they gave me a textbook we, we had these tech schools that are supposed to teach you how to be able to get a job um, that was really the main focus we're not people that go to colleges we're people that get jobs and so um whatever that means <laughs> <laughs> and so uh mine's my part of the school was separated into this idea of service. Um, home home economics was the name of it at the time. And so they actually didn't have a budget for food. And so um, we came in the first day of class, and she hands us a textbook and just says, write down word for word what's in here. So if hmm. anyone looks in the classroom, it looks like you're doing something. Oh, my goodness. So there's there's nothing yeah. being taught. And so I didn't have any tools leaving high school because, you know, there was no – there was no recruitment in terms of or or positioning to go to college Um, there was just military and then there was these these jobs that they were somewhat training us to do and so um, I worked a lot of menial jobs I used to be a a doorman Um, I used to work in factories doing labor and all these types of jobs and at some point I got jealous seeing all of my cousins and friends have these like rims that I really wanted and these sneakers that I really wanted and um, and so I said to myself well I, I should figure out how to make a lot of money quick and when you have that mentality and you're in the hood your first thought is selling drugs or, or doing right. illegal things and when I had that thought you know I, I realized that most of most of the folks in my father's side of the family in Philadelphia the boys um had are uh, had all like been in and out of prison um and so I said to myself, I really need to figure out another way. So I went to Florida and my cousin was going to community college. Their classes were only a couple hundred dollars. I said, I'm going to take a class first because I wanted to be around people my age. But um, I decided to take an art class because in art, you, uh, even at that point, I knew that you didn't have to do any writing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the idea of not being exposed for the lack of education and being able to do this other thing that was fun be around people my age. And so um, I started making ceramics because the teacher that I took my first drawing class was a potter. And I noticed that you know one of the reasons why I started uh, wanting to go to college is because I wanted to be around people my age. All the jobs I had were around older people. And there were always people in the pottery studio. And it was because they really needed those facilities. They needed to physically be there and interact with one another. And so the first time I sat at a potter's wheel it really felt like something I wasn't supposed to do. It felt like, not icky in a bad way, but like, you know, are people, are people aware that I'm doing this? Like, can they see me? Like, mm-hmm. you know, is someone going to stop in here and, you know, push me off the wheel and say, Puerto Ricans aren't supposed to make pottery. And um, so it felt sort of, no pun intended, but it felt really dirty. And, um, and, you know, when I started making things from the wheel, I wasn't thinking about how to make pottery. I was thinking that this machine makes round things. You know, because in my my estimation, I'd never known anybody to make pottery. We didn't use handmade pottery. So I just saw it as a as a, as a machine. So one of the first things I made on the potter's wheel was a, a fire hydrant, a soap dispenser. Because when, when I was younger and the water gets shut off, my dad and I were showering the fire hydrant. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I, I like to talk a little bit about in art is, um, you know, one of the important things about diversity isn't sort of like this... I think a lot of times when people think about diversity, they're thinking about a, like a charitable uh, exercise, but really diversity is, is great for the community in that like now that you have someone like me, you know, I'm bringing in this this other sort of concept on, on how the wheel can be used. And so within the classroom, not only am I growing, but the folks around me are really being exposed to um, more of a comprehensive understanding of, of what that material could be used for.
0: What the material of clay can be used for. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw one of the things you're doing is um, pottery in the streets. Yeah. And is that part of that for you?
1: Yeah, pottery in the streets, because I think, you know, uh, a lot of times people try to make efforts to communicate and, um, you know, participate in, in uh, cultures like the one that I grew up in, like an urban environment that's, uh, you know, impoverished and also has mostly, like, black and Latino people, and it seems really forced, you know, like, we're going to meet here at this particular day, let's put up flyers, let's, and, you know, my thing was, like, well, what happens when you just randomly show up on a wheel and people are walking around, and in their cultural landscape where they're normally seeing all this other stuff, they see someone that looks just like them making pottery, And then it jars them and then they stop and ask questions and you say, would you like to try this? Would you like to sit down and make pottery Mm. with me? And it's amazing because people that you would never assume would want to do it, people that like look like thugs Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, look like they don't have any sort of emotion to them. Or, you know, my case, I was working with homeless people. I was working with prostitutes, just people that would just show up and say, I want to do this. Um, And for me, you know, these folks that had really difficult lives that led them to you know uh, being victims of of um, of sex trafficking or, or being you know victims of of of, of drug use and um, all these folks like they were just completely kids again you know before they learned how cold this world is and mm-hmm. seeing that look on their face. Um, is a reward for me. But also, I think in some ways, I don't have the illusion that they're going to become potters. But I think if anything, they'll be able to see that there's some good in the world. And there's a lot of things out there that are possible that maybe they didn't realize. So I'm more interested in the implication of what someone like me making pottery outside can do versus like um, the the literal increase of numbers of people that are making pottery.
0: Right. I think that Yeah, that is so important. Like just the act of being visible in doing your work. So as a Puerto Rican man, who's also like of the age that you're of and, and and then doing that in the, in your neighborhood or in places where in black and Latino communities and in places where people are not doing pottery and doing art, just the act of being visible in doing that can have such an impact. And I think that's what I see in, in the food work that I do. That's what I see in so many different creative people is, like, just taking your art and out into the world and being visible in it has such an impact because it changes people's understanding of what's possible, even in tiny in tiny ways. So Yeah,
1: yeah and, and I, I think um, when I engage in conversations with people and we talk a little bit about their lives and I talk about mine, they say, what do I do? And I say, well, I teach at Temple University and, you know, like, I grew up in that house right next to where we're doing this thing. And, you know, even they get a sense that that's important, but I don't think they they realize, like, how difficult it is to get a a job as a professor. Right. (laughs) And an artist of color, you know, how many people apply and how many people have these incredible careers and the fact that I was chosen to to be a part of this really prestigious program and teach. For them, um, you know, it, it means... Everything in the world—not that they're going to become artists, but that they—they they have a far greater potential than they realize. And for me, that's it's a, a huge, you know, benefit to that exchange.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've seen that some of the work that you're doing is also trying to create opportunities for other artists of color to to do be in shows with you, and and kind of so it's not just you as like the one Puerto Rican ceramic artist, but like getting other artists of color. Into shows, and I saw that you um, you did a show called They in mm. in New York. Can you talk a little bit about why you're doing that, including
1: other artists, and and a little bit about that show? Well, I mean, the first thing is is I, I try not to do too many solo exhibitions. I kind of don't like the idea of a solo exhibition because um, a lot of times I cover. You know, we're we're talking about a specific topic, and and honestly, I am. I'm very ignorant on everything. And so uh, for me to cover a topic, it feels like there's no way that I can do that in any sort of comprehensive way. And so uh, in general, whenever I'm doing an exhibition, I think, well, how can I... I wonder what this this subject, like the idea of otherness would look like uh, from an indigenous woman. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What would this look like for somebody who's transgendered? Um, What would this look like, uh, you know, from somebody who grew up in the South? And so... um, it's important for me to to you know explore those ideas first for my own education, um, but also because I think it it it, um, it supplements my work and, and makes me think a little bit about um, where I could be of service. And so, um, <clears throat> a lot of times when I'm when I'm working, I think of myself as just you know I think years and years and years from now, the way that we're going to look back at this is you know how we look at Greek pottery today and we say oh, that's Greek pottery. We don't say like you know Artemis made that. Or whatever mm-hmm. the person's mm-hmm. name is, and so for me, I'm just an American potter, and um, I, I like to participate in, in culture in that way because it makes me feel like I, I don't have to do everything myself. The other thing is, I think mm. part of my artist's goal is to be irrelevant. Like I want there to be so many, you know, Black and Puerto Rican potters right. that it's just like, oh yeah, Ben Rob is one of them. You know, I don't want to be the token. Uh, you know person of color working in class i've given 40 lectures in the last two years like that's how in demand artists of color are and people that are making this work and and so the more i can use that platform that i've been given because it's temporary you know Mm -hmm. and be able to give that to others and allow them to be able to do the things that they want to do um, is huge, and so i'm I'm constantly looking for young artists of color and encouraging them. The other thing that's happening a lot of times is a lot of them face the same issues, like one of the things that's really apparent to me is a lot of young artists face this thing called the silent room where they're making artwork or they're doing pursuing something. And people don't know how to respond to it because they found themselves in communities that haven't um, yet had to face issues of race or issues of otherness. And so a lot of times people either A, don't want to say anything offensive, or B, don't know what to say at all. And so um, the the more that um, we figure out ways to, to support one another this year at um, – the National Ceramics Conference, I just started a conversation. A bunch of people wanted to meet me, young people. And I said, let's meet at this room at this time. And so I started off with three people. And by the end of it, we had 76 um, Mm. black and Hispanic artists. And every time these young people came into the room, it was the first time they ever seen other black and Hispanic people and indigenous people that working in clay. And they just had these big smiles on their face like, oh man it's more of us and so we all like fell in love with each other and that day we made this thing called the artists of color caucus and so we've just been figuring out ways to support one another i've been selling t-shirts these pottery saved my life t-shirts and with those proceeds i've been sending young artists to take uh workshops at, at, at uh at um at uh haystack. <clears throat> institutions yeah and yeah. so i started a scholarship at haystack and uh, I had to raise $40,000 to make the scholarship in perpetuity. And I showed up to the gala last year. And this is how wonderful the art community can be. We raised all the money in about seven minutes. What? I told them my story, like three minutes of my story. And then they said, how many people want to donate $5,000? And I was like, there's nobody going to donate that. Oh, my God. And five people donated that. And then it went, kept going down and down and down until... They said anybody could donate $20. And by the end of it, you know, we had raised all this money. And I got to work with the kid that received the first year of that. And so it's just this really incredible thing that's happening. And for me, I feel like my role is to take all the opportunities that people have given to me and just, you know, give it right back mm-hmm. and uh, see where it comes from. And, and at the end of the day, if um, if I die, and nobody knows who I am, then I think I, I did my job. Mm. So that's what I'm kind of excited about.
0: Yes. I love everything you just said. And the I think about my work a lot like that too. Like when people give me opportunities, is there someone else I can pass it on to? Or if I receive something, how can I share it with other people? And especially for me, it comes also from a place of being a white person doing this work and and how do I share the wealth that I have and the privilege that I have in the society. But, but I love what you're saying about kind of making yourself irrelevant. Like that is success when, when there's so many other people holding that work and moving it forward. And it's not just you, mm-hmm. but that, that's really beautiful. You
1: know what's really interesting with this idea of you, you when you, you say you're a white person is you keep saying that and I keep looking at you, I'm like, you're not white. <laughs> you know. And I think uh, for me, th- I think maybe one of the, the, the reasons behind that is, is because you know how like a lot of, there's a lot of ignorance <laughs> in this world, but a lot of people say like, I don't see color. Mm. and I get so annoyed when people are like that. Like you talk about it, so they're right. like, well, I don't see color. Right. But um, I just think like whenever someone is, uh, I think, the idea of of woke gets overused whenever somebody's like so in the fold within the 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 plights of of all people and you know just wanting to improve this world it almost just seems like immediately we're we're family you know Mm -hmm. so it's just like oh you're not you're not you're (laughs) like me you know so um it's just like (laughs) weird how, how we wind up eventually you know like melding into one another and then when we think about the idea of whiteness, we, we think about people who are opposed to a conversation or even like wanting to think that they have some advantages in this world. Right. And so like we're, right. we're really one and the same.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that. And like, so to me it's a yes, it's a like a both and mm-hmm. because, so first of all, the idea of whiteness to me is the problem, right? Because that puts all of these people together who have all these indigenous practices and cultures in their history and makes them all one thing. Yeah. And so, That's where you create this power of this idea of whiteness over all these other people who we talk about as like individuals, like you're Puerto Rican and this person is Dominican and this person is West African and Nigerian or... um, and so just the concept of whiteness is part of the problem. Yeah. And so I personally have done so much work to understand my heritage. And I'm also a Jewish person. So that's, like, another complex part. Like, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Like, this is in my living memory of, like, the genocide that my family experienced because of our cultural heritage. But... Um, so for me, I think of myself as white and all the complexity of, of whom, what my culture is. And like the culture that I live in is very racially diverse, very culturally diverse in terms of my family, in terms of my community. And I live in a society that does think a lot about white and black and does see white and black or white and brown and black. And, and so as a white person or as a Jewish person doing this work, like I... I guess in this era, like also name my whiteness or name my privilege at times because I think it's important to acknowledge that. And whether I'm working with white people or working with people of color, but I totally feel you, and I feel like I live in solidarity and in community and in love with so many people in doing this work. And so part of why I wanted to interview you is because I saw what you were doing, and I was like,
1: yes, these are he's my people. <laughs> yeah. So
0: so I totally and it feel feels you.
1: great because I think a lot of times the work I make, you know, like for example. Um, I'm Puerto Rican, but, you know, I, I would say probably in the last five years, I've gotten really comfortable with um, thinking of myself as as an Afro-Latino. And, right. You know, the reason is like 30 percent of my, my blood is, is from Africa. My family didn't come. I mean, just Congo. There's more. But um, my family didn't come over here on vacation, you know, and so it's this thing where you know it's like my blood is this and then I grew up in a a, a community and uh, you know where it's like mostly black and like all the music I'm listening to and all the like sort of culture that surrounds me you know is completely enveloped into this idea of black and you know like when I was young when we go to the movies there's like distinctive movies that we will go you know it's like when New Jack City was out, we weren't thinking about, okay, should I see something about Mary or should I see <laughs> this there. other rom com? Right. It's like that was the only movie right. that was out. I remember. And so that's you know, that's a whole part of society that that folks don't get. And so, um, you know, what's really interesting is like making the work. A lot of times I'm making teapots and urns and I'm putting um, people of color on them and like 90% of them are black and I'm like well if I'm going to be real and like organic to myself these are the folks that I think of when I think about these subjects I'm not going to force myself to find a Puerto Rican person or find a, this person it's like this is this is my life and so what's interesting is like a lot of um, the black community like has never questioned that like it's yeah. not like I ever step into a scenario and they're like well you're Puerto Rican you can't really like be doing work about Harriet Tubman and, and, and so this that the fact that folks, um, you know, see me as is is part of them. I think is, is so essential to that. So that's kind of what I mean when I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Is like, oh, you're you're just like me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like so, um,
0: yeah, yeah, it's great. yeah. No, I love all of that, and I, it's it's good because I was going to ask you about that. Like mm-hmm. noticing, um, just everything you just said was exactly what I wanted to understand how you related to being Puerto Rican, where you are part of your heritage is black, and then also growing up in a community where African American culture and history was so foundational also to to your life and is. And so seeing that in your art, I love that you just brought that up on your own and, and, and talked about that. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, like describe some of your artwork a little so people who haven't seen it can, can understand what it looks like. Um, yeah. Sure. So
1: I, I guess well, one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, figuring out how to... Um, engage with multiple audiences at the same time and make you know an artwork that does different things for different people and you know you can't control any of that right but um, I can sort of orchestrate some of that so for example um, one of the things that I do is I look quite a bit at historic uses of porcelain and ceramic art and so at some point porcelain was considered more expensive than gold and there was wars fought over there's this great book the Arcanum where the the search for porcelain and people were murdered um, and You know, it was a huge export. And so when we look at those works, people were. Commissioned uh, large amounts of money to be able to put portraits of their family or people that they thought were important on them, and so the idea that the most expensive thing that you can possibly purchase and you put a face on it, even today that idea still communicates to us visually. When we look at somebody, um, when we look at a teapot in a store um, that looks like it has a lot of detail, you're sort of afraid to touch it and break it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that idea of value and of something being worth, and then Um, something having a worth and then seeing a face on it, you'll immediately think this person's important. And so a lot of times I try to put what I call my my ghetto goggles on, which is like I try to think back um, in the same way that I would think before I ever went to school in sort of higher education. And I'll look at a teapot and I say, this looks expensive. And I'll go from there. Like this thing looks expensive. Um, How can I put somebody that represents my ideas that would communicate with the audience that um, I grew up around and um, and then at the same time, because I'm using historic porcelain and really doing my research to figure out, um, you know, what forms were used, how they were made, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that then communicates with this other, you know, what some would call a scholarly uh, sort of uh, conversation where people are looking at it more for its, its art, um, its craftsmanship, its its connection to art history, and um, its newness, what makes it distinctive. And so my, my work tends to tends to uh, communicate so a lot of times I'm making things like um uh, porcelain teapots and one of the reasons why I make that is because I didn't grow up make drinking tea and so it's already like a foreign part of it but tea you know generally symbolizes more than one person sitting down for a conversation which is what my work Mm -hmm. is about it symbolizes um you know this idea of uh you know it, it, multiple cultures are involved in it but it's, ha- it's got two sides so i can put two people on there and you know kind of control what that looks like and then on um, this idea of the urn you know one of the things that happens with with ceramics is a lot of times when somebody like me is making it people are like well pottery shouldn't be political well, it was like greek pottery was about sex war and, mm-hmm. you know everything and, and you know all these works are about all these things that were done throughout our history so it's always been political. so how could you say that you know um, right. so it's this idea that like um, you know this th- that uh, pottery you know can can sort of tell our story. So what's interesting is I'll put a picture like let's say I put a picture of somebody like Mike Brown on a pot. So what happens is is somebody's like well, this pot is political because what you're saying is like you hate police. And it's like, well, no, this. I don't live in this binary where I was like, I could love police and support police, but also still think that some people who commit crime should be held accountable for it. You know, the people that, right. that are our police that do these things. And so for me, aside from all the politics, all I'm trying to say is that this person was somebody's kid and they deserve an earn. You know, you can't say this. Life isn't worth that. So if you consider that political, that's your that's your concern. For me, it's just paying homage to someone that, that people may not think is is as important. So my my work sort of takes this form of um, allowing things to, to maybe come out of the news. Like I won't do an urn of Mike Brown when he's currently being talked about. I'll wait a few years later till he's not out of the news so that I can rebring it and reintroduce it. Mm-hmm. And then also it has some permanency because it's made out of clay. And so that's the physical work, but a lot of my work comes through education um, and, you know, participating. Like I give talks at places, like I've given talks at um, Yale in the Symposium, Felix Exeter Academy, but then I give talks at juvenile detention centers, drug rehabilitation centers, Cedar Citizen Homes, and I don't really have a hierarchy. All these things are equally important to me so that I can, you know, figure out where where I could, you know— be of service to these communities. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that's that's really the breadth of my work is figuring out how to um, communicate in multiple ways, whether it's like through through giving a talk but also through through making works because both things um, attack us and, and communicate with us differently. You know, there's a lot of things that I can do visually that I could never say in words. And so it's, it's given me a voice that, I, that I've really never had. Mm. So I want to remind
0: people uh, you're listening to The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel, and this is WNHH Radio 103.5 FM, and our guest today is Rob Lugo. He's telling us about his ceramic art, and some of the vessels that you have done have faces on them, and as you said, they have two sides, and you're pairing two different people together. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ones I noticed were somebody who was um, who has passed? Someone in in history, and then someone who's in living, who's an important person in living history. So people of color, um, or people who are important to you. Um, can you talk about a couple of those that, and why you paired the two people together?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I'm honestly trying to figure out um, with a lot of these the, these pieces why people feel differently than I am, because it's so easy. You know, one of my professors. Um, I won't say the, the full curse word, but he, he used to put a quote on the board every day. And one of the things he used to say was like, we often seek advice from people that are co-sign our own BS. And so for me, um, because of where I grew up, you know, I'm, I lean more towards, um, you know, being a, uh, the, you know a, a le- uh, on the left side of things really in everything in my life so I get so confused as to why people oppose that so rather than like just figuring out how to reinforce that my ideas I'm thinking a little bit like I'll watch quite a bit of Fox News and i listen to folks who feel really different and you know I put myself in more of this like liminal space this space where um, there's really no right or wrong to be able to get a sense of of why Um, folks feel a certain way because if I'm trying to communicate with them, I have to understand what their plight is and why they're feeling this way. So an example of this is, you know, recently I made a pot with uh, Colin Kaepernick and and on the other side of it was John Brown. And so for those who don't know who John Brown is, he's a white man from Kansas who was hung um, because he was in support of, um, of anti-slavery. And so, um, you know, at the time he was considered, you know, by folks that were hanging him as this, this criminal, And that he was opposing this idea of whiteness, right? And so, like, looking back at it, I mean, I don't think there's very many people that could outwardly say that he wasn't a great person for his art, for for what he was doing, right? And so at the time, he was, like, the, the biggest villain. And then in hindsight, you're like, hmm, you know, this whole, like, not having slaves thing was probably a good idea. And so he's a good guy now. And so the thing is with Colin Kaepernick is almost like in society we've been we've been fed that everything's is binary. It's black and white. Either you either you hate uh, you know the military um, and you love Colin Kaepernick, or you know it's it's the, uh, the opposite. And, and I don't think that that can be true. I, I, for me, I just see it as like you know this person is is standing up. And this is the approach that he had to it. You know, and I'm trying to understand what that means. And so for me, it's kind of like what I'm trying to say is like, hey, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe like a couple hundred years down the road, you'll look at somebody like a Colin Kaepernick and think about him like a John Brown? You know, so, you know, trying yeah. to like put things that are happening currently in this, this other context, I think is really important because... um You know, for me, I can understand why people would be offended by someone kneeling at the the flag because I have family that are military, you know, and people have died in the war. But at the same time, I'm like, somebody told me that that's the way I'm supposed to feel. Like when I saw that, that's not like my instinct wasn't like he's disrespecting the flag. I was just like, oh, this person's kneeling, you know, let's watch the rest of the game. And then someone's like, oh, this is how you should feel about it. this is what this means that he's doing. Right. And then we, we, you either have to join one side or the other. And I just think that that's such a like, that's such BS, you know, and, and there's so many different ways to look at that thing. There's so many like gray areas in between, the, you know, either this black or white that you know we're not really uh, seeing and so I'd like to think of my work as this idea this Peter McLaren idea of of being a liminal servant sitting in the middle um, engaging both sides of this conversation and figuring out um, you know how to not how to answer anything but um, how to ask the right questions and figure out how we could um, in, in exist in a world that's more enlightened and doesn't you know necessarily immediately go to this idea of a binary
0: yeah, absolutely. And it's so destructive, right? It's so dehumanizing to go to that place. And so I love when I was looking at your art online, seeing um, all these different ways that you have different faces. So as you said, like that piece with Colin Kaepernick and John Brown, and then all the other pairings that you have with like Whitney Houston and Shirley Chisholm, and then the pieces you have kind of commemorating black music with like Wu-Tang Clan like yeah. symbol on the bottom. But like you're using these really traditional... Um, vessel shapes and um, I just love how you're um, bringing it into this human commemoration like thinking about life versus thinking about this this kind of story that we're telling about if you kneel before the flag then you're like anti-american anti-police anti-military versus looking at what is the actual intention of what he's doing and so I love that you're I love the way that you're bringing it out and when I look at your painting on your pottery like there's so much detail and it's done with like clearly so much intention and knowledge about like who the people are that you're commemorating and why you're pairing them together. And then the decorative pieces that you're doing around them. It, um, I think it's really powerful. Like it's really, it's really meaningful.
1: Yeah. Um, the piece that you're referring to with the, um, the folks that's in black music is called a century of, um, black music. So I've been doing the series, um, that are called century vases and so at the 1876 World Fair in Philadelphia they made this thing called a century vase that described a hundred years of American innovation so things like the sewing machine and um, other things that sort of began here and so um, what I tend to do is look back at this like really historic piece and say okay well if I can use that as the form Then all of a sudden I'm talking to these curators and these historians that really uh, would never engage with something like hip-hop. And then also when I'm using the hip-hop and using this form, I'm like introducing ceramics so these folks would never like introduce, like interact with clay. And so what's really compelling for me is like how many times I um, will go to the decorative arts wing of a museum and, you know, like – I'm just me I'm not gonna I'm not gonna alter myself for people. So, you know, I'm really comfortable with my my little hat. Sometimes I wear it backwards, sometimes my jeans sag a little bit. You know, I got my little Wu Tang shirt. And so I'm checking out like, you know, eighteenth century like porcelain in the museum and, you know, like drawing and writing notes and the security guards just look so confused, you know? And uh and so when I make this work with the thing that gets me most excited is Um, how many people who would never go to the decorative arts wing of the museum now get to go there and see something of themselves. And so I'd recently had a solo exhibition at the Walters museum and we're putting up this, this show. And there's um, that particular building, that house um, has a history of slavery. And we have, you know, we have so much information about who lived there in terms of the slaves and all the security guards, most of the security guards there are black and we're installing this artwork and they're seeing it and they're, we're having a conversation. They're like, man, finally there's a show about us. Mm-hmm. And all these security guards added me on Facebook and we're like friends now and we're just like they I what's really what they don't know is I used to be a security guard at a museum and I'm sitting there and you know, it's like this this really incredible moment where I used to be a, a doorman at this place in Philadelphia, and um, it was across the street from the museum, Philadelphia Museum of Art. So I would go there and eat my little sandwich on the steps, and I would never go in because it was like 15 bucks to go into the museum. So I never entered it, but I was a security guard across the street from it. And you know, through art, through this process of art, um, maybe two years ago, the Philadelphia Museum of Art bought a piece of mine, which is like really unique because they don't really buy contemporary ceramic artist work. And so to have a piece in there was huge for me. Um, but to think of this idea that like now I have artwork and I'm not just like somebody who's gone to the museum, I physically have artwork in there where before I couldn't even afford to enter the door. Right. And so there's something really powerful in that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's crazy is that ceramic art is something that belongs to so many people of color currently and in history right it is not something that European or just Asian people had as their art form this exists in all and but in America we and in the art world it's been thought of as a white art form when you see ceramic art um, of indigenous American peoples or people through South America or in Africa and other places it seems like primitive art right there is no difference. Like, it is art. It is ceramics. And so the idea, I think, like, reclaiming this idea in your own way of, like, bringing pottery together and representation of people of color and pottery is 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 really important. And, like, it's important for us to acknowledge, like, the roots of pottery are not white. They are everybody. They're all people did pottery. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, what you're saying is, is – I, I just want to make a real quick point. What you're saying is so poignant because of the fact that, like um, – if any of these folks, like if we take some of the, the Ghana potters or some of these these potters from Thailand who like jump into the water to get clay to then make it all by hand and it's completely around. The if any of those people lived in America, they would be like the most famous uh, ceramic artists. And, you know, because they live in this indigenous community and, um, you know, in the places that they, they, they reside, it's primitive artwork. Um, but, you know, when you take someone who who's had the benefit of of going to, uh, you know, a, a prestigious college or university, all of right. a sudden they're a famous artist. Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, gathering clay from soil like in cities? I've been told that you've you've done some of that, like making your own clay from soil that's contaminated. Is, is that
1: true? Yeah. Well, I did it more as a, um, I did it more as a. Is a performance piece because it's not very good clay. (laughs) So uh, one of the things that I went uh, and did, and one of the pieces that's in this exhibition, is called "Ghetto is Resourceful," and I'm trying to reclaim this idea of of what it means to be ghetto because I think a lot of times when folks think of the word ghetto, they think about um, you know a poverty-stricken neighborhood and um, you know ghetto rigging something, but like. What's interesting is like ghetto rigging something is the same as like this DIY culture. So like if a white person does it, it's DIY. If a black person does it, it's ghetto rigging, right? And so um, what I did was I went back to where um, my, my own neighborhood in Philadelphia, and I would I would play in these um, in-between spaces. So so many of the houses were burnt down from the crack epidemic um, that we had just like all these like empty lots. And so that's where all the kids would play. But because it was a crack epidemic, there was all these syringes around. And so when I was younger... My mom was sick and, and I was like 5 years old and, I, and and I was you know she was just had a cold and I said mom oh uh, you know to that point a needle made you feel better and so I said mom I'll grab you one of the needles from the playground and help you feel better and she's like don't touch those needles you know and so um, thinking a little bit about how far my life has taken me I decided to go back and um, dig the dirt from that playground and then sieve it out And then dig deep enough to get clay, and then take that clay and with all these found objects to make a potter's wheel, and make pottery right there on site. And so I have like a forty ounce of beer that I'm mixing the clay with, and you know spinning it, um, you know on a tire axle, and then making pottery out of it. And so this is the idea that like um, there's some brilliance in the people that live in these neighborhoods and can you know figure out these the, the engineering. That would be required Mm. to do that. Like, my father, he would take old um, washing machine parts um, that he found in the street. And, like, he'll take a screwdriver and a tin can lid and poke a whole bunch of holes in the tin can lid with the screwdriver. And they would have a jagged edge. And then that would be a blade for a food processor. And then he'd take the engine. And so you could take a washing machine and you could just, like, you could completely grind down like hundreds of plantains within minutes because of this machine that he made. I mean that's so innovative, you know.
0: Totally. Yes to ghetto brilliance. I yeah. think that's that's like the next t-shirt. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, wow, thank you. Can you also talk about um, the there's a piece that you've done around food stamps yeah. i'm sort of you know i food is like my orientation to the world as well as like every so many other things but uh can you talk a little bit about the food stamp piece and also just about the relationship of your life and work and food
1: yeah so uh you know one of the things is with food stamps is um one of the reasons why I started working in that way is because, you know, in in art, there's a lot of these, like, landscapes, and what's interesting is, like, for the most part, for the longest part of my life, whenever i see Abe Lincoln, I think of a $5 food stamp. Whenever i see a landscape painting... My my first interaction with like a landscape was the back of a food stamp where they have this family holding hands, and there's this like cityscape, and then on the other side there's this silo and a farm, and so I'm drawing. A lot of times I'm like, whenever I'm using a landscape, I'm just drawing the landscape of a food stamp, and it's like hidden in there, and people can't really uh, tell. But you know, it's uh, the, the idea of a food stamp is, um, at the at the Walters Museum right now. I have this piece as you enter the museum, and it's Frederick Douglass in. Um, on, it's called a food stamp jar, and uh, the, the security guards were a little concerned. They were like, "Why is why did you write food stamp for Frederick Douglass?" And I said, "Well, there's a, a, a landscape of a food stamp image on the back, and I just find that this whole room has a bunch of landscape paintings, and so I kind of wanted to put a landscape painting of my own in here. And so I'm um, thinking a little bit about how someone like a Frederick Douglass works so hard to, you know, create." The opportunities that we have today and how we've been held f- so far back that even someone like me so far after Frederick Douglass had to be on food stamps because of the lack of opportunity so for me it symbolizes a lot I think the other thing about food that really um doesn't promote a lot of progress is like folks uh, you know th- there's all these you know like People think, you know, uh, if you have food, then that means you're not really struggling. But, like, if you're not educated and you live in a food desert, you know, it's like you're constantly eating potato chips and, like, things with sugar in them. And you're not, like, you know, where I come from, we didn't have trees. The closest thing we had to trees was, like, the light poles. And we didn't know how to grow stuff, you know, like, grow our own food and herbs. And so, um, you know, when you use food stamps, I mean it's kind of like you're, you're constantly like buying what well, we would just like buy now later and cornflakes right. with them and you know all these things that are like lead to diabetes and so food you know is, is so so ingrained into like how we we feel about ourselves as people and so like for me um, you know I grew up real poor but growing up on food stamps like I could buy a whole hoagie with you know um, two dollars in food stamps and so it's like uh, I could buy food but the food that I was buying was not really doing anything for me and so I li- I've lived with diabetes my whole life mm. and um and, you know I've struggled with obesity and you know where I come from obesity you know being quote unquote fat is the equivalent of being ugly like there's no way to be like big and be good looking you know so it's like this this um this inferiority that's followed me from from being a person of color and you know all these people telling me you know like uh, I can't date you cause you're Puerto Rican or I can't date you cause you're black or people using, you know, racial slurs. And then I can't date you cause you are fat. And mm-hmm. you know, like not in, aside from all that, just like the friends you make and the way your family feels about you. So, um, recently I wrote this, uh, this piece called, um, uh, a note on obesity. Maybe I could share that if that's okay with Please, you. Please, Absolutely. So I prefer people that empathize over people that exercise You could work on your pecs and thighs until your body's next to God. But if your heart's anesthetized, then you don't realize how your judgments affects my real life attempt to feel God's. You think you real wise, but this pain can't heal my real pride. You see, I haven't seen my family for a year and they're going to comment on my weight. Wait, that's what you say? I thought you was going to say, I miss you. I'm so ready to kiss you. Here's some letters I wrote you, Papa. I just want to say that I wish you lived close. But instead I hear, Are you drinking water? Have you tried calisthenics? Do you still have all your toes, Rob? I know you're diabetic. Stop asking me these questions, man. They come off as pathetic. On the news, they say obesity kills and I should live in fear. Well, how about show me some love while I'm still here? All that weight that you carry, it most feel like a boulder. The only thing that bothers me is what you put on my shoulders. Stop talking down to me. I said enough's enough. If I'm in prison in my body, you providing the cuffs. Mm. <laughs> so wow. it's, it's like, you know, I've been working really hard as of late to, you know, lose weight and it's, it's been great. Like I've lost 60 pounds and I'm doing that for me because mm. it makes me feel better and because I've had diabetes since I was a kid. But looking back, you know, like uh, right now I teach at Temple University and I live in the suburbs and I drive to school every day and I stop at the bodega near school and there's nothing healthy there at all there's not a piece of fruit there's like chips and like you can't even find like there's water and there's like nothing in between there's not like you know water with a hint of lemon it's like either you get a soda or you you know what i mean you get so it's 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 not surprising to me that like all this 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 food um that that surrounds folks um it's not like supporting you know a healthy culture it's not like home-cooked food it's like all this quick stuff that you can get really cheap And so um, for me, that's been my relationship with food. And and now I've become really obsessed with it in this other way. Like, you know, um, I challenge myself. Like, for example, I'm cooking protein at the house and I'm thinking about how to season everything with just using herbs, like no powders, you know. Like, how do I do that? Because, like, everything in my life was adobo and sazon, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm I'm relearning food now, you know, and and also changing my taste quite a bit. Like, um, how can I use cottage cheese as a meal? you know like cuz it's i hated the taste of it now i love it and so um it's it's interesting cuz as i grow as an artist and i grow culturally people don't think about like uh you know like i'm puerto rican so that should be my culture but like you know uh, being american and being involved in all these communities like these are all this is all culture to me you know this is all new to me and so my parents like they don't have the taste you like you give my my brother my father they came over the other day and i gave him a little bit of pad thai and, and they were like, okay, noodles. And then they tried it, and they looked at me like I was crazy. You know, I was like, what is this? This is gross, you know? And so for me, it's like it makes total sense that a Puerto Rican would like pad thai, you know? But yeah. it's like if you don't eat these foods enough often, then, you know, you you, you don't quite develop that, that tongue for it. And so my relationship with food, I think, is it, still growing. And, and I'm really excited about it because I love— I love watching like the um the chef's table and seeing someone like a Francis Mallman do like open fire cooking and you know um and uh you know I love watching Christina Tosi you know make pastries and so I'm 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 all about those things and and it just gets me really excited to like go home like after everything's said and done the number one thing I love to do is cook like mm-hmm. I love cooking and I have a 4 year old little son um and I've been trying to figure out with my busy life, how to spend time with him? So I've I've made a habit of every day cooking something with him. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's like we're we're learning how to make cookies, um, like the other day we made some with applesauce, or he he thinks smoothies is is cooking. And so he uh we have a smoothie dance we do together where we shake our tushies, um, but like just just working with him in that way and teaching them like um how food how food is made and how you can do it with your hands. And um, I think it's just, it's been really a rewarding experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I'm hearing you talk about food, and it seems exactly like how you approach your art is just all this learning and discovering and trying new things and and bringing things together. It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So we have to say goodbye now. Oh, man, I I could talk talk to you all day. I know.
1: (laughs) I really could talk to you all day. So thank you so much for joining me. Yes, I'm very happy. So if folks uh, have an opportunity tonight at... um, from 4 to 7 o'clock, we have an opening um, with the students. It's called paying homage, and these students are looking at folks that they wanted to pay homage to. Just to give you an example, I'm covering um, Javi, who was a student who was shot, um, who went to Common Ground. And, you know, it ranges from that to students covering Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, the students are also going to share their writing tonight, and um, it's going to be exciting. So if you get a chance, come out to Art Space on 50 Orange 50 Street here in New Haven, Connecticut.
0: Excellent. And can you tell people where to
1: find your info, info about you online? Sure. Uh, my website is robertolugostudio.com. Um, and uh, my artwork, the new artwork that I've been making is at wexlergallery.com. I try not to put a lot of my artwork on my own site because it's just a lot of work. So I let them do it. They're getting paid to do it. So. They, they
0: got a lot up there so people <laughs> yeah. can check out a lot uh-huh. of photos of your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. All right, you're listening to The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We cover stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Check us out online. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and you can find current and past podcasts on any podcasting site and a lot more information on our website, thetableunderground.com. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven.